You're listening to the weekly podcast of Bethel Bible Church and Pastor Eric Barton. We're so glad you've joined us today. And as always, you can find more information about the church at our website, BethelBible.com. You can find us on Facebook and even follow us on Twitter at Bethel Bible. Let's join Sunday service now. Thanks, Jeff. Jeff Bice is our uh, missions pastor. And if you don't know this, Jeff is probably one of the experts on what's going on in the world of missions all over the world. And we get to have him here at Bethel. And we're so thankful for what he does as he leads all three campuses in looking out. And as you've already seen from one of our update videos, there's a lot going on at Bethel. It's a pretty great time to be a part of Bethel. And all the while those things are happening, we also always want to be outwardly aware and outwardly directed. So I'm thankful to Jeff and the missions committee who always lead us in that direction. I uh, want to say also good morning to everybody. My name is Eric Barton, and I get to be the pastor down here, and I'm so glad that you are here. We, um, we believe steadfastly that the reason you are here is no accident. It is no coincidence. We believe that God and his sovereignty and his grace has directed you to be here, to be gathered among his people, to be gathered by his spirit around his word. And when that happens, we believe that God's word makes it very clear that something transformative can happen. And so we are praying, we have been all week, that God would do a thing through the time that we have together and that he would speak. When we study God's word together, God literally speaks in the present tense through his word. So that is our expectation. Now, a lot of the things that we've been talking about this morning with uh, a focus and an emphasis on orphan care has to do with our, our focus on mission. John Piper, a long time ago, said, and it got a lot of raised eyebrows, but I don't think he was totally wrong. He said, missions happens because worship doesn't. Missions happens because worship doesn't. His assertion was there are a lot of people in the world who go through life never directing their heart's affection, their mind's attention in the direction that it was intended and it was made to go. The book of Ecclesiastes says that God has planted eternity in our hearts. St. Augustine said that God has made us for himself and we are restless until we find ourselves in him. There are some fundamental needs that we as a species have that our maker knows. And so when we go to our Bibles, we figure out that our Bibles, well, they're not so much read by us. They read us. They understand us. And so it's been a thrill this fall semester to walk through some of these parables in the Gospels, what we call these Jesus stories, where Jesus tells a number of stories to illuminate and illustrate to those who are already followers of his, while at the same time irritate those who are rejecting his claims. We've walked through several of these this fall semester, and this morning at long last we come to the final parable. It is found in Luke chapter 18. So if you've got your Bibles, I'm going to invite you to turn to Luke chapter 18, beginning in verse 9. I'm going to read all this all the way through, and then we'll unpack it just a bit, and then we'll see how we can apply it to our lives today, here, and now. So Luke chapter 18, beginning in verse 9. Jesus also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Just make a little note there. Those are the two foundational, fundamental issues of the human species that Jesus is going to address. 
These people trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified, rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. This is God's word. Now, we're going to talk about what these two fundamental issues are, and I'm going to go ahead and tell you the big idea for the morning, sort of the punchline for the passage. It's this. Righteousness means being accepted and approved by God. Having complete acceptance and approval by God. It is one of the most foundational, fundamental requirements of any human being. We have to know that someone accepts us. We have to know that there is someone who likes us just as we are, not as we could be, not as we should be, but someone loves us in spite of all of our issues. One of the most pressing issues an adolescent will ever go through is his role or her identity. Am I accepted for who and how I am? And if they don't feel that, they will begin to reach out or lash out in all sorts of illicit ways. But righteousness, it means being accepted and approved by God. So let's look at this passage in a little bit more detail and see how Jesus is going to speak into this. So again in Luke chapter 18, this is immediately on the heels of a previous parable we studied last week, the parable about faith. We are to be a prayerful people as a demonstration of our faith, our trust, our belief, our recognition that there is a God, that he loves us and has a wonderful plan for our lives. Now, without a whole lot of explanation as to why, Luke puts this parable here the way he does. And it's helpful for us to remember that each one of the gospel writers has a different thrust. They sort of have a different emphasis, a different trajectory they're trying to get across. The book of Matthew is written by a Jewish believer, Matthew, to try to help his readers understand that Jesus, oh man, he's the king. He is the rightful heir to the throne of David, the good king, the shepherd king, the one who would rule and represent God on earth. It's Jesus. Oh, he's not what we expected. He's a little bit different than we had anticipated, but Jesus is the king. Then the gospel of Mark comes along, and Mark has a different approach. Mark wants us to understand that Jesus is the suffering servant, as was foretold in the book of Isaiah. Now, you may or may not know this, but even today, in the 21st century, ultra-Orthodox Jews in Israel read Isaiah as part of their normative readings. However, they only read like chapters 1 through 13, then 18, and then they skip kind of to the end when the really good stuff picks up again. All that stuff in the middle that talks about suffering and the Messiah, you know, hurting, that's weird. So they don't even, they don't even really read it anymore. Oh, it's there. They're not claiming that it's not biblical. It's just not really what we want to hear. And so they just sort of ignore it. But the Gospel of Mark is telling us that all of that stuff, it's Jesus. He is the suffering servant. Then you have the Gospel of Luke. 
Luke is trying to help us understand. Luke is a Gentile, a Greek thinker. He's trying to help us understand that Jesus is the man. Not just, he's a really cool dude. No, no, he is the man, the son of man. He is God made flesh. Jesus is the walking around depiction of what happens when a person is sinless and leans completely and totally and 100% of his life on the power of the Holy Spirit. He is the man, the commander of the armies of the hosts of God. That's Luke's thrust. And then we go to the Gospel of John. John's trying to communicate very clearly, very concisely that Jesus is God. He himself is deity. So we have to kind of understand that. Luke is making a point when he arranges all of this content. And here we find ourselves in Luke chapter 18 and verse 9. He also told this parable. Remember, a parable, again, is to explain some things to some people while at the same time obscuring it for others. Now, this parable is one of the simplest and easiest and clear to teach because Luke tells us precisely why Jesus taught this parable. Jesus is addressing those who trust in themselves for their righteousness. In other words, they believe that they themselves can produce whatever is required to have acceptance and approval by God. They can earn it. This is what I would call nominalism. They say, I love God, and I'm going to do whatever it takes for him to approve me, to accept me, to have right relationship with him. If it's to be, it's up to me. But Jesus tells this story to address those people. They trust in themselves that they are righteous, and as, re as a result, they treat others with contempt. They treat others with contempt. Righteousness, that fundamental foundational need all of us have to be accepted, to know that we are approved of. This is why Jesus, when he's speaking on the Mount of Beatitudes in the Sermon on the Mount, addressing the lowest and the last and the lost and the losers, in Matthew chapter 5, verse 6, he says, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be satisfied. Blessed are those who crave intensely. Hunger and thirst put together means there is this existential need that I have for righteousness. Now, this passage simply cannot mean blessed are those who really, really want to be really, really good. No, righteousness means something vastly more. Righteousness is one of those words that's sort of fallen out of our normal, customary conversation in our culture and civilization. We use churchy words. Oh, righteousness means uh, really well-behaved or super moral. Uh, they never have, uh, you know, the, the bad words coming out of their mouth. They never watch bad movies. They only watch TBN on Saturdays between 2 and 4 because even the commercials are good. Uh, those kinds of folks are the righteous ones, right? They never have anything newer than an iPhone 4 because, I mean, come on, that's just too much. This is, you know, righteous. Really, really good folks. Or maybe we church it up a little bit and we think that righteous means to be without sin, to be holy. But that's not the way the word righteous, dikaios, was used in Jesus' day. The word dikaios was used very commonly, very consistently in everyday conversation because everybody recognized that what they needed was to have right relationship with God. It meant to have acceptance and approval by God. And so this is just a part of everyone's everyday conversations. This is why Jesus says, blessed are those who intensely crave 
who hunger and thirst for righteousness, they will have it. And it will exceed in abundance their expectations. They will have my full approval, my full acceptance. But when a person does not sense, feel, walk around in the awareness that they are approved and accepted, it always translates into others. Anyone who tries to declare themselves or earn themselves righteous to have a right standing with God and who doesn't actually have it, they will always treat others with contempt. Exuthaneo, it's a technical word. It's a combination of three words. It is to count you as nothing. It's not violent or aggressive hatred. It's not that. It's not contempt like I just hate you. It's worse. It's utter indifference. I count you as not even being present. I look right through you and around you. You are simply in my way. If you drive that burgundy minivan on Broadway, that was the way I was looking at you, and I'm sorry. I admit, I'm the chief among them. To treat someone as zero, to count them as nothing. Because that's how I feel. If I do not have righteousness, if I don't know and sense and feel and appropriate that I am accepted and approved by God, then I feel listless and lost. And I'm going to treat you the way I feel. And so Jesus says, this is a foundational issue of the human species. I know I made them, Jesus says. And so he's going to tell a story to address the two different approaches for how do people deal with these fundamental foundational needs. He tells a story beginning now in verse 10. Two men went up into the temple to pray. One a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. Now, we do church the way we do church, and I'm betting that for most of us, this is not the very first church you've ever attended. Wherever you grew up or whatever other church you've attended previously, you probably did church a certain way. But I'm almost certain that none of us have done church the way the ancient Israelites were doing temple 2,000 years ago. Now, I've got a picture of Herod's temple from 2,000 years ago. This is sort of helpful to maybe explain a little bit about what's going on. There was Mount Moriah in Jerusalem, and Herod has this thing shaved off, and he builds up this massive retaining wall on which he rebuilds uh, Solomon's temple, which had been sort of refashioned under Zerubbabel, but he makes it enormous. And there's all of these different ways that you could go in from the east, if you're a Gentile, you can be on the platform, but you can't go into the inner courts. If you are a Jewish woman, you can go into the court of women, and you can watch through the Nicanor gate, and you can see that your sacrifice is properly prepared, but you can't go any farther. But if you are a Jewish man, you can go into the court of Gentiles, past the court of women, and all the way into the interior courtyard where you can go past the altar and actually have some time of devotion and prayer yourself. Jesus says, you guys know how this works. Two men go up and they walk right past all the other pomp and circumstance and they go into the inner court and they're going to have a time of prayer. Two different characters. One of them is a Pharisee. Now, most of us have been to church enough times. We know what we're supposed to expect when we hear the word Pharisee. Cue the Darth Vader music, right? Dun, 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 dun. He's got a big stitch on his cheek. He's the bad guy. Always in all the encounters with Jesus, the Pharisees are the bad guys, right? Well, not to the people living 2,000 years ago. 
the Pharisees were the good guys. They're the golden boys. If you're shooting Luke 18, 9 to 14, if you're making that into a movie, the Pharisees played by Robert Redford. Some of you just went flutter, flutter, flutter. Yep. It's played by the golden boy. It's Robert Redford. He's the good guy. He is the moral man. He is the patriot. When all of the world was falling under the, the curtain of Greek culture, Hellenization, becoming more debauched and pagan and immoral, it was the Pharisees, the Chesedim, those who were set apart and separate, who stuck their foot in the ground and said, oh, no, not on my watch. We will not give up our distinctive. We will not become like all of the other people around us. We will hold the line. We will tow the rope. They were the heroes. They were the ones that every else, everybody else wanted to emulate. They were the ones that everybody envied. They were the upright, standing, moral citizens. They were good people. And then you've got a tax collector who is the absolute most hated citizen in all of Israel. He is a traitor. It's sort of like, and I can't overemphasize this, this is a graphic illustration and I apologize, but imagine a Jewish person collaborating with the Nazis during World War II and giving names of other Jewish people. The horror and the offense that that would be. That is how a tax collector in ancient Israel is viewed. These people went to an auction to purchase the right to tax and cheat their own people. They submitted bids, and if they won to Rome, Rome would grant them the right to collect taxes for Rome and then take as much else as they wanted for their own pockets. And these people were citizens of Israel. They knew who everybody was, and so they knew whose house to hit up twice, thrice, four times each month. They were hated, but you couldn't do anything because the tax collector would always show up with Roman soldiers and say, knock, 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 Shlomo, it's that time again. Come on, nah, nah, nah. I know who you are. I know your family. I know your clan. I know your tribe. There's more. Give it. These guys were the most hated people in all of the land. So these two guys go up into the temple confines to have private devotion and a time of prayer. Let's watch what happens. Verse 11, the Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus. The text says that he sets himself apart. Whereas everyone else is gathering in the typical places, not this guy. This guy sort of sits up on the front row to be all by himself so that no one else will by any means identify him with the other rank and file, riff and raff, hoy and polloi. He's special. He puts himself apart. And not only that, but the text is actually very intentionally vague in the original. It says, he prayed, and my translation says, thus. It's a bad translation. It says something like he prayed to himself, or he prayed by himself, or perhaps he prayed about himself. Whatever it is, the grammar is interesting. It's all about him. And this is what he says. He says, God, hey, yo, God, I need your attention here. I'm talking. God, I need your attention. I thank you that I am not like other men. You can already see him putting his hands on the shoulders of everybody else. I'm not like other men. Extortioners or unjust, I don't take advantage of other people. I treat everybody fairly. I'm not an abuser or a victimizer. I'm communally minded. I'm all about that social grace. 
which is good because being an extortioner and being unjust is forbidden in Scripture. So he's saying, I'm doing what I'm supposed to be doing. He says, I thank you that I'm not an adulterer. I'm not messing around on my family. I am moral and upright. I'm a good dad. I'm a good husband, probably a good son. I promote family values. This is who I am. Or even like this tax collector over here, which I've always wondered, can that dude hear him? Because that's like awkward. Like, you know, I can hear you, Steve. I'm right here. It's not very quiet. It's, you know, I, I can hear you. Thank you that I'm not like this guy. Man, God, <laughs> you're welcome. You're so lucky, big fella, to have me on your team. But it's okay, don't mind. I listen. It's my pleasure, really. It's just fine. So I listen. What else am I going to do? You're welcome. This is the nature of his prayer. He says, I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. This guy is a good man. He's generous. All that he gets, he gives back at least 10%. Now, probably in a very noisy way so that everyone knows that he's doing it. But he's generous. He gives something back of everything that he receives all the time. He's a good man of noble, upright standing and character. Between these two guys... If these two guys, one of them shows up at your door asking for your daughter's hand in marriage, you're picking the Pharisee, not the tax collector. The tax collector is played by, I don't know, somebody like Steve Buscemi. Got that droppy eye and just a crook, swindler-looking kind of dude. If that guy shows up at your house and asks to marry your daughter, you tase him in the throat. You don't want him near you, right? And so the Pharisee said, I'm so glad I'm not like this guy. I give away all my stuff. I even fast twice a week. Oh, now this is clever. Everything else that he's mentioned is actually good. It's biblically commanded in the Old Testament. Don't be an extortioner. Don't be unjust. Don't be an adulterer. Yes, tithe. Be generous with your stuff. But he says, hey, God, I just want to make sure you understand that I'm actually on the varsity I have a, my letter jacket has a big Y for Yahweh on it because I'm like, you know, I fast twice a week. Now, clearly, I have never had that prayer in my life. I've never fasted twice a week from anything other than not eating. But he says, I fast twice a week. The only place the Mosaic Law talks about fasting is in Leviticus 16, the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur. Once a year were Jewish men commanded to fast. Once. This guy says, once, I do it twice. We got to 104 times a year. I know what the requirement is, but I ratchet it up by 100x. That's how good I am. Just to make sure everybody knows how special I am. Feels pretty good about himself. And you know what? It feels pretty good to be pretty good, doesn't it? Hmm. Well, then we have this contrasted. Verse 13, but the tax collector also standing far off. But you get the idea. He is not standing set apart because he knows he's special. It's because he recognizes that he has no business being by the other worshipers because he is such a moral train wreck. He's standing far off. He would not even lift up his eyes to heaven. Boy, this hit me like a ton of bricks this week because, man, I've been there. Have you ever just thought about your life where you stand with the Lord and you think, I, I can't even look upward because, oh my goodness, here I am at the age that I am and I'm still struggling with that sin. What a 
flaming wreckage I am. It's me again. I've done the same stuff again in in anger or in thought or in deed or in whatever. I don't even think I can lift my eyes, and so I I just sit there and simmer my own shame. You ever been there? (laughs) Maybe it's just me. Maybe I'm the only one. But I felt like this guy feels. This guy connects with my soul. I am this guy. Can't even lift up his eyes to heaven, but he beat his breast. <laughs> this is awkward. This is not what we do in worship. To beat your breast was to essentially demonstrate extreme mourning, extreme sorrow. It's as if you're saying, Oh, I wish my heart would stop. I wish that I was dead. That's not generally how we go to worship. It's kind of a downer for the rest of us. If we look over and you're just, I was was dead. Okay, how about we go to a third song, right? This is not appropriate. It's disgraceful behavior in the temple courts. He's beating his breast. You know what the worst part is? You're not supposed to ever, ever, ever do that if you're a dude. Only women do this. This guy should know better, but apparently he's kind of a rookie at worship. He doesn't know any better. He's just sincere going, I wish I was dead. When I compare my wretched estate to the holiness that I know to be true of God, there is no comparison. I can't stand here. See also Isaiah chapter 6. I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. And then he says something astonishing. He beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. It's a definite article. It should be translated better. It's not a sinner. It is have mercy, be merciful to me, the sinner. He looks around and he sees nobody else there except God himself. Contrasted with the Pharisee who looks around and sees everybody there except God. It's an interesting perspective. God, be merciful to me, the sinner. I'm not saying he's saying I'm the worst of all time. He's just saying right now, that's all that matters is my sin before you, a holy God. Now, the marvelous thing here is what he says. The translation says be merciful. It's not the word. There is a time when uh, a blind man or a crippled man sees Jesus passing by on the road and says, son of David, have mercy on me. That's a word. That ain't this word. This word is Hilasterion. God, I'm not going to give you my resume like the Pharisee. I'm just going to give a request. Would you be propitious? Would you be propitiated? Would you turn aside your wrath and put it on somebody else? (laughs) Because that's my only hope. Not just show mercy, not just pretend like it never happened. Be propitious. Have your wrath transferred onto another. See, we don't sometimes understand what's going on here. This is temple worship. Two services every day, 9 o'clock in the morning and 3 o'clock in the afternoon. At both times, you come as a worshiper and you bring your animal. You bring your sacrifice to say, God, I need to be in right standing with you. I don't feel very approved or accepted. Here's my sacrifice. The Pharisee was probably there at 9 o'clock in the morning as well as 3 o'clock in the evening. You get the sense that the tax collector just sort of sloughs in the side door and he doesn't have the pure spotless lamb without blemish that the Pharisee had. He's got a pigeon with one wing and no beak. And he's just like, 
It's been in his pocket for a week or two. He's like, mm, that's all I got, man. And he walks up to the altar, and he's like, oh, here. Uh, and he starts to walk by, and the priest says, no, 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 no. This is on you. You've got to do it. See, at temple, when you bring a sacrifice, you present it to the altar, and the priest comes and turns the knife around and hands it to you. You are the one that has to prepare the sacrifice. You are the one that has to slay, to cut, to, to take this piece and throw it in the ash pile, to take this piece and throw it over here, to take this piece and burn it thus. You have to do it. It gets all over you. This guy does it at the altar, and he's probably ashamed of, of how it looked and what it was, and he walks over to the wall, not the wailing wall like we see today. He's up on the mountain in the inner courtyard, and he's probably still got the gunk and the blood all over his hands. He says, God, I know that my error, my trajectory of wreckage caused this. Something innocent had to die in my place. Would you apply all that I have done to this innocent? It's my only shot. It's my only hope. Listen to Jesus' commentary on how this goes. Verse 14. I tell you, this man, the tax collector, went down to his house. Temple Mount sits at about 3,300 feet elevation. Anywhere you go, you're going to be walking downhill. He goes down justified. I wish it was a better translation. He goes down righteous. It's the same word. Dikaio. He goes down righteous. Fully approved, fully accepted by God. He goes down having been already raised up. What's the answer? God, I don't have a resume. I have a request. The immediate answer is yes. 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 He goes down already justified, righteous, rather than the Pharisee. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. What a grace. Not just forgiven, raised up. Not just accepted and approved, but treated like a son, adopted. The orphan has become a prince simply because he asked. Simply because he asked. See, righteousness means being accepted and approved by God. If we try to do it in our own efforts, as Luke 18, 9 says, then we are responsible for our own transgression. And there is no substitute. We are the ones who have to be on the altar. And it's never, ever going to be enough. And it would cost us our very lives. And there is no right relationship and life with God. But when we say, oh, my God, be propitious, be satisfied, transfer my guilt to an innocent. God says yes. So I want to give us just three very quick points of implication, some, some thoughts, some takeaways, why this text is here, and how we can apply it to our lives today, even now. Number one is this. Righteousness requires a right recognition of your wreckage. I'm kind of proud of that one. It's got a lot of R's, all right? So even if you disagree, write it down and humor me. Righteousness requires a right recognition of your wreckage. The tax collector shows us that he recognizes and understands the depths of his depravity. He's not reaching back and trying to find anything good that he brings to the table because there isn't anything. He understands the extent to which he is outside the character of God. 
He beats his chest shamefully because he appreciates his condition in comparison to God. His only request is the only request that he can make. Please atone for my sin. Please pay for it. Place the wrath that I deserve on someone else that does not deserve it. Can you imagine the arrogance and the audacity to ask for that? <laughs> I can. Because I have. Because I do. Amazingly, about six weeks after Jesus tells this parable, the apostle Peter is standing in almost the exact same spot in the temple. And in Acts chapter 2, he tells the men of Israel, you killed the Christ. And they say, what must we do to be approved and accepted by God? What must we do to have righteousness? And he says, hmm, hmm, you must be cut to the heart over your sin. You must have a right recognition of your wreckage. Be cut to the heart. This evil deed that you perpetrated against God's Christ, he has used to provide the substitutionary payment for your sin. Do you believe? And they say, oh my God, be propitious. And 3,000 are baptized that day. Because they have an accurate, right recognition of their wreckage. And if you are living under the illusion or the assumption that God is pretty lucky to have you on his team, I can tell you that your life will be a never-ending strain of competition and comparison because you'll never really feel like you're truly accepted and approved by anyone, not to mention God. Well, that brings me to my second point of implication. Comparison is the robber of righteousness. Notice the Pharisee compares himself to everybody else, and he's empty, and he's unrested tax collector compares himself to nobody. I'm not saying that comparing yourself to anybody else will steal your salvation. I'm not saying that. I'm saying you lose the sense, the identity, and the confidence of being accepted and approved. See, this is good group therapy. What I need most is to be accepted, to be approved of, to know that the only opinion that really matters does love me. And when I have that confidence, when I have that identity then I don't have to burden you with giving it to me. Do you see? And it frees up all the people in my sphere of influence to not have to give it to me when I'm so desperately craving it from them. No, no, no. I have it from the only opinion that matters. The thing that seems to swipe away our righteousness, our sense of approval, is when we start comparing ourselves to anybody else. It happens when we perceive somebody to have something less than us to be less than us, to not be as attractive as we are, to not have the resources that we have. And we begin to take all of our good deeds, all of our good stuff, and we build for ourselves a platform from which we can look down upon people and treat them with contempt. Meaning, we just want them to not be there. I only find value if you can increase and improve my station. But if you can't, you're in the way. All you have to do is fire up an internet browser, go to any news website, turn on your TV, look at the news, and you can see that the problems of our world all stem from somebody thinking somebody else does not matter. And I don't know who it is for you, but all of us, every single one of us, struggles at the institutional or individual level. There is a race that you just automatically assume I'm better than. Maybe someone of a particular political position where you go, at least I don't vote like that idiot. 
Maybe it's someone who is not as attractive. Maybe someone who doesn't have as good a health as you. Maybe someone who doesn't have the resources, the affluence that you do, the intellect and the IQ that you do. And you just automatically assume, whoo, good work there, God. You didn't make me like them. Let me remind you, Jesus loves ugly people. I'm chief among them. Praise God. Jesus loves people with old iPhones. Praise God, I am numbered among them. He doesn't love like I love. God's economy is not like our economy. Praise God, I am accepted, I am approved, regardless of what I bring to the table. For some of us, perhaps, you have a tendency to go the other direction. You find people that you perceive to have more than you. More affluence, more intellect, more attractiveness, more resources, whatever it might be. And you, without them even knowing it, are equipping them to be disappointed in you, which fires up your furnace to try harder, to be more, to do better, which is a prison, which is a chain. Comparison is the robber of righteousness. By the way, piously looking around and saying, well, there but by the grace of God go I, is usually just a sweet euphemism for, oh, dear God, thank you that I'm not him. Instead, we have to see those who are struggling, those who are in error, and go, that's me. That's me. I have the exact same potential. How can I help that brother, that sister, who is flat on their face? Because that's me, do you see? Not in comparison, but in companionship. Third point, my righteousness has nothing to do with my resume. There's nothing, my approval, my acceptance by God has nothing to do with my accomplishments nor my achievements. God doesn't love me any less. God doesn't love me any more because of the things that I struggle with every single day. There's nothing I can do to make him love me more. In fact, the Apostle Paul in Philippians 3 says, all the good stuff I have ever done, I realized it wasn't just not good. It wasn't neutral. It was actually bad. It was rubbish. It was dragging me down. I credit it as loss. All of that good stuff. But I am perfectly accepted and approved by God, the only one whose opinion matters, and it is eternally. I was reminded of this a couple of weeks ago. Some of you know we had the opportunity to be in Israel, and we're walking through the Garden of Gethsemane where Jesus prayed on the slope of the Mount of Olives. And I was reminded of it then as I am now. There Jesus is really struggling with what he has to go and do, and he asks his disciples, boys, I need you. I'm struggling with this deal. I just need you to stay awake and pray. Can we do that? You bet, boss. We'll do it. Just stay awake and pray. Okay. Set a timer on your phone. Okay, we got it. He walks off. He comes back. <clears throat> they are flatlined. I mean, there's the little drool thing. They're out cold. He's like, boys, I told you to pray. We got it. We got it. He goes away. He comes back. They're asleep again. Goes away. Comes back. A third time, they're asleep. You know what I'm saying at this point? Okay, Father, I'm done. These idiots can't even stay awake. I'm out on this deal. Find me somebody who at least knows how to drink coffee. I'm not dying for this. But you know what he does? He dies for them anyway. He goes through with it, suffering the anguish, the scorn, the shame, the pain, the separation from his father for people who persistently and pattern disappoint him. Because he's not disappointed. Because he has declared righteous. He has said, you are approved. You are accepted. I hear people, even in this church at this campus, all the time saying, well, gosh, I just feel like I'm supposed to do this, and I know that God wants me to do this, but it just that's not my thing. I just feel so awkward about it, and I, I, know, it, I, I know that I should, but I just, uh, and I say, whoa, 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 whoa. You know, do you know that God still loves you? That you're still his favorite? 
He's got this like galactic Kenmore fridge up in the sky and your picture is on it. Do you know this? And not one thing that you do or don't do takes the picture down. You are approved. You are accepted by God. You have been declared righteous. I'm not saying, of course, that we should sin flippantly because that does grieve and quench the spirit. It separates us from experiencing and enjoying life with the Father. It brings reproach on the Son and his church. But nothing I can do will make him love me less or more or more. Now, remember I said that Luke has a point in telling us all of this, that righteousness means being accepted and approved by God. The very next chapter, I love this so much. The very next chapter, we find Jesus taking a little field trip. He's gone down from Temple Mount where he was teaching the disciples, and he goes low. I mean, he goes low. I mean, he goes to the very lowest. He goes to Jericho the lowest city in the world. He goes low. And he encounters a guy. Oh, you remember, what's his name? He was a wee little man, and a wee little man was he? What was that guy's name? Zacchaeus. And Zacchaeus' job was the chief tax collector. Public enemy number one. Jesus tells a story. This is how even a tax collector is approved and accepted. You know what? Let me show you what I mean, how much I mean it. He goes and he finds the worst one in the lowest place. He says, Zacchaeus, <laughs> because of all your good deeds, eh, no, I'm coming to your house because I declare you accepted and approved. And Zacchaeus goes, <sighs> and gives away all that he has. Not because he has to, but because he has found the only thing that matters. For some of you here this morning, man, maybe you're still like Zacchaeus. You're up in a tree someplace, wondering maybe if Jesus will stroll by. I just want you to know he has. And what he wants more than anything is to tell you, to convince you that you are accepted, that you are approved. And so long as you try to stand on your own efforts, it'll never be enough. Not only will it not be enough in eternity, you will be miserable in this life here and now. So if that's you, praise God. Then God has spoken in his word to tell you that he wants to declare you accepted and approved. You might be thinking, okay, but what do, what do I have to do? What's my end of the bargain? Agree. Agree that you need that. That he is your only hope. See, the difference between Peter and Judas is Peter said, I recognize that I have the blood of this man, Jesus, on my hands. Judas said, I will not have this, blood, this man's blood on my hands, and he runs off, not approved nor accepted. But we say, God, be propitious. I will, uh, mm, I will get the blood of this innocent man, your son, on me. It is my only hope. You remember in the temple, in the Holy of Holies was this really cool box called the Ark of the Covenant. And on top of that Ark of the Covenant, there was a lid. The name of that lid, we call it the mercy seat. It's not what it is. It's the place of propitiation where the blood is sprinkled. Be propitious to me, my God. Would you transfer and apply my sin to the innocent one? It is my only hope. And the answer is always yes. Now, if that's you, the first time the pennies just dropped and it's clicked and you believe, we want to talk with you about that. We're going to invite you to stick around to meet one of our elders, one of our deacons, one of our staff. You can talk with someone else that you know and love and trust about that. We want that to begin today. For the rest of us, perhaps, however, 
You've been a believer for a very long time, and you have gotten out of the recognition of your wreckage, and you're still trying to improve your standing before God. You are approved. You are accepted. Now live in light of that reality. You are hereby released and unleashed to live and love in the world and to not treat anybody else with contempt. Righteousness means we are accepted and approved by God. Let's pray together. Father, we do thank you for this reminder that you have gone all the way, all the way down as far as even Jericho. And you have approved us, you have accepted us, not because of anything that we have done, but simply because of the finished work of your son. And so, Father, if there's anyone here this morning who does not know you, I do pray that you will move irresistibly by grace, by your spirit, and lead them into a saving knowledge of your son, that they would step out of death into life, that they would receive and recognize that you accept and approve them. For the rest of us, Father, would you free us all over again from the chains of trying to earn your favor, to have right relationship with you, because it is finished. Would you remind us to not compare with anybody else, but to consistently ask that you would be propitious, that you would remove our issue, our error, as far as the east is from the west. We know that you have already said yes. Father, we love you because you loved us first. We pray all this in the power of your spirit and in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, thank you so much for being with us. We want to be the first one, perhaps, to wish you a very happy Thanksgiving. Let me ask you to stand for a word of benediction, and we will be dismissed. Next week, we begin our Advent series, and I cannot wait. It's going to be a lot of fun. November 26th, we start Advent season. And so let me benedict thus. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May he cause his face to shine upon you, and may you reflect it. God bless. You're dismissed. Have a great week. Thanks again for listening to the podcast today. We hope that you were blessed and encouraged. And if you have any questions or comments, we want you to let us know. Simply send your thoughts to questions at Bethelbible.com. Thanks for spending time with us and be sure to join us next week on the Bethel Bible Podcast.